Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to What? That Old Queen? A candid and adult take on queer life quandaries at a certain age. So please listen at your own discretion. Presented by Bernie and Tommy, their views are their own and in no way reflect those of any service you may hear this program on. Now, let your ears be upstanding for the <coughs> old queens. Hey, Tommy. If I'm ugly, then so are you. <laughs> are you referring to the sugar babes by any chance? I am, yes. <laughs> Which we saw in Bristol last night, the beginning of their tour. And what did you think? I thought they were amazing. Um, yeah, every song was just a banger, really. Yeah, it was, it was brilliant. Night. Yeah, absolutely loved it. And it was packed in there, wasn't it? Yeah. And then I went home and couldn't sleep. So I just googled everything about them all so i'm i know everything about bum replacements breast <laughs> enlargements <laughs> take them out again it's all happened to Mattia. oh really mm. she's she's had the full works and then taking them out but i thought they felt like they were in last night yeah, yeah. <laughs> she she looked really good yeah. didn't she yeah she looked really good you could tell even from a great distance that we were but she's had a lot of work done. Yeah. <laughs> but, but good on it. Yeah, looking good on it. Uh, and who's your favourite? Oh, I don't know. I think I sort of flipped, really, but probably Mattia. Mm. Yeah, I think she's my favourite as well. Which one's the one that left early on? Siobhan. Siobhan. Mm. I do like her. Yeah, she's kind of more, like, ethereal and a bit more... She's a bit pre-Raphaelite. Yeah. And... It must be a bit weird for her because she's singing songs when she wasn't actually part of the Sugar Babes. I mean, probably they all were. Yeah, they, I mean... <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and um, some of the girls that were behind the bar looked like they'd been in the Sugar Babes at some point. And, yeah, there was a security guard <laughs> that looked like Heidi <laughs> at the end. I mean, you've got to work, you know. Well, maybe they were all there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but just doing different roles. Solidarity. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did find out as well that they were, you probably know this, but they originally were called the Sugar Babies. Right. 
because they were only like 12 when they first got together. Right. Okay. But they updated it. I think I prefer the sugar babes than the sugar babies. Um, sugar babies has a different connotation, which I'm not, I'm not sure I like. Yeah. <laughs> so how have you been? So I had to do a, a show without you. I know. But you were there in spirit. I liked it. <laughs> I enjoyed Peter's impression of me as well. I feel like I should do one of him in return. <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> well, now I set myself up for a fall. Um, quintessentially. No, it's not like that at all, is it? Uh, but he d- I feel like he would say quintessentially yes. quite a lot. Yeah, he's, he um, uses a lot of big words, doesn't he? Yeah, very well-mannered and beautifully talked. Yes. <laughs> well, not like me well spoken yeah <laughs> beautifully talked <laughs> he wasn't dragged up like what we were um uh, so what were you doing i was putting together a show which actually i've been working on for the last two years it's been just like a massive um i was gonna say labor of love it, it has been a labor of love it's also been a labor of um hatred as well because you just it's just been such a full-on um process a lot of research was involved in it um and we made a show about a a trans woman from the 1900s that i found in an archive in newcastle um just her mugshots at the beginning so we just found her mugshots um that the police caught and it was just the show was about kind of piecing together her life through what was documented of her, which were only her criminal actions. I had a band and I had an actress playing this central character and I performed, I guess I performed as myself, but like a bit of a kind of archivist historian type person. Mm. Yeah, but there's some really good music in it. Amazing. And how did it go? It was really good, yeah, yeah. It was was just a, a struggle and at the end I just felt like I couldn't put, I was I was finding it hard to be in the show and to look at the show, so I hired for the last four days a director, and I think that was a really good decision. Okay, and will you do it again? I don't think so. <laughs> okay, <laughs> put it to bed for a while. Yeah, it's um, difficult to say. I'm still letting the dust settle. Okay, yeah, but we did put together a, um, an exhibition, so we went into Gloucester archives. Um, and we tried to find some queer stories from Gloucestershire archives about LGBTQ plus people in general then. It was difficult because it always is finding stories in archives because there wasn't those kind of labels that we that we have now. Mm. Um, but we did find some really interesting ones. Oh, did you? Have you got have you got some for us? Well, I got, there's a collection. There's a there's a sort of small collection that we presented as text and images, and had them in the sort of foyer space of the theatre. And some of them were quite famous people, like Joe Meek, who was a music producer, sort of probably like from the. 50s, 60s and sort of spiralled into kind of struggling with his mental health and was involved in um, cottaging and had um, soliciting young men and then was rumoured to be part of a, a murder of some young gay boys and ended up shooting his landlady and... Is this the Telstar guy? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think it's just a really interesting story because it speaks about like inherited trauma of gay people, mm. um, and and but also I think you can talk about Joe's story in the sort of I feel like queer people are drawn to the science fiction type 
vibes mm, and was, yeah with the Telstar song it feels very space agey and yeah, I think totally. there's a I mean there probably is one but there's it feels like there's a dissertation in that yeah oh definitely yeah I got something from the archive which was was one of the first items that was found in the archivists when I sent them an email saying oh you know I'm looking to do some work in the archive and try and find some queer stories. The archivist said that her heart sunk because she knew that there wasn't going to be much in there. But oh. as soon as she started looking, she found some. She uncovered some, yeah. yeah. And there was this beautiful old manuscript from the 1800s and it pertains to like a massive sort of book, like a logged document of correspondence at Westonbert, the kind of manor and the and the and the surrounding village area that was owned by a you know a, a property owner that lived in that lived in London that was having correspondence from someone that was kind of looking after the running of the estate um and there's a kind of record that in this beautiful transcript which I've got a which I've got um the I've got the extract that yep. has been transcribed so we can't so we can actually read it Okay. Um, so yeah, this is the correspondence to Richard, who was obviously the landowner. Dear Richard, I have yours on the 22nd instant, and according as your desire, have endeavoured to find out about George Andrew's case. In May last, one William Langley, or some such name, an inhabitant of a poor man's son of the city of Gloucester, which is interesting that they would refer to him as, a, or some such name, and he's like the son of a poor man. <laughs> yes, almost like he's not really important, isn't it? Well, I think it goes on to kind of talk about that because it's a story about consent, really, about some someone that is rich taking advantage of someone that's poor. Right. Came to Western Burton, inquired of your tenant, George Andrews, for work in husbandry and offering his service. I don't quite know what husbandry is. Uh, it's animal husbandry. So it's about um, the breeding of, of cattle and okay. farm animals, basically. So um, William uh, ends up lodging with and working with another farmer who's called Walter Watts. And then it says, um, In August last, there was whisperings about Western Bert, as if George Andrews had buggered his fellow. But... I do not find that may people believe it. Yet upon the noise Isaac Humphreys made a vessel of a very good ale, and some others contributed, and on the 22nd of September last had a mock lying in. What's a mock lying in? So um, uh, how I understand it and how it's put in, put in context is a mock lying in is a sort of ritual ceremony kind of thing. Oh. Which is a little bit like... I mean, this was the time of the Molly Houses and they famously did a lot of, like, rituals about, like, rebirthing their queer selves and yeah. those kind of things. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's then a lengthy description about this ritual of the mock groaning, an elaborate act of labour, childbirth and a baptism of a baby's name George. This was designed to shame George Andrews and possibly William who played the part of a pregnant woman and was also dressed in petticoats. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds quite fun. Well, it's very performative, Uh, isn't it? Yeah, I guess there was a different sense of a shame around this sexual act as well so it might be discussed more publicly in in this kind of 
ritualistic forum. Yeah. I don't know. So Lindsay went to Mr. Um, Kinscote for a warrant to arrest George for buggery. A warrant was issued. George was thereupon taken and carried before Mr. Stevens Lindley. Um, sorry, Mr. before Mr. Stevens. Lindsay was examined upon oath and said on the 4th of August last, or thereabouts, at 12 o'clock at night, or about that time, after George's brother John had gone with their wagon to the coal pit, he said that Lindsay was lying or sitting on Buckmore Bridge by himself, that George came to him and took him by the hand and said to him, you have very soft hands, which is a beautiful detail. That's a good come online right yeah <laughs> i might use that in the, so in the exhibition i've got um the illustrator alec to to do a picture of one man holding the other one's hand saying you've got very soft hands <laughs> and the compliments being over george invited the fellow to go up to the house and lodge with him all night and to drink with him there then he consented Struggled with that word. Mm. Um, then he consented <laughs> and went with George to go into the cellar. There they drank a little, but not to excess. Um, and then they went to bed together and that George buggered him. That said Lindsay, who at first said he consented to it, but upon a nod afterwards, retracted the words before the justices. Uh, I don't understand. So he said he consented, but then he said he didn't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's all very confusing. Fickle. Yeah, <laughs> but I think you have to think about like what might the power dynamics might be in place and, and the what... consequences of all those actions as exactly, well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, sir, this is the truest history I can get a present of this nasty affair. So this is the kind of manager of the land writing back to the owner. Um, sir, this is the truest history I can present of this nasty affair, which I cannot believe to be true, but the villainy contrived and set out on foot on purpose to revenge George. Tis to be observed that this fellow never opposed George in his nasty attempt, never cried out or made any noise to awaken or call up any other family for his rescue, but by his own confession freely consented. If this is true, George and he are equally guilty and ought to suffer alike. Your humble servant, Francis, good enough. <laughs> <laughs> is it good enough? <laughs> I mean... I mean, it all sounds a bit vague to me. <laughs> it's so vague. Or, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that they keep saying, or oh, thereabouts. Yeah, or uh, maybe. With, with the dates. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it just shows the... It just shows the slipperiness of the stories in the archive, that yeah. these things aren't documented very well, and there's a lot of things that you have to try to... Um, Mediate is that the right word? Mediate, yeah, yeah it's kind of like or navigate, even. navigate, yeah, read between the lines, yeah. But I guess back then no one had watches and stuff, or... so times of day and mm. and and names, yeah, <laughs> yeah. seem a bit vague. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what the upshot of this case was? Well, I think the upshot of it is that nothing happened, right. Yeah, it was just an accusation that ended up being just a ritual, and then, and then because this poor boy had claimed that that happened and then hadn't, then there was just a lot of confusion and nobody really knew what happened in the end at all. So whatever it was, they got away with it. It seems that way. Yeah, yeah. 
Wow. And were there lots of stories like that? Uh, well, this is the oldest story that we found, but we were just going for quite a sort of broad sweep. So we also looked at sort of stories from one of the suffragettes, um, Mary Blaithwaite, and they have her diaries in the arch- archive. She just documents in a diary, like, Abby is sleeping with Sarah now. And, like, she's just really interested in the sleeping arrangements for these women. And, of course, you can't say what these women are doing. It's possible that they were just sleeping in the room together. Yeah, because people did back then, didn't they? Yeah, but it's quite interesting that she seems to be so obsessed with it. Wow, that's so interesting. And so what's going to come out of this... So there's an exhibition um, that will be at Gloucester Archives and that will continue, I think, until Christmas. But for me, like, this is how I tend to work. This is how I found Jenny's story, the show Mm. that I've just made, was I I was touring another show and I went to the archive to do a workshop and then found this story. So it feels a bit like this one could be my next show. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it might be a baldy romp. Yeah, it could be, yeah. yeah. Lots of petticoats. Yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, from one baldy romp to another, you've had your braces removed now, haven't you? I have, yes. And uh, But you need to wear a retainer, is that right? Yeah, every night, yeah. Yeah. Every night for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wow. So, do you remember back in the annals of time, we had a question about rimming with braces? Yes. So <laughs> when I read that, I thought you meant like braces to hold up your trousers. <laughs> no, with braces on your teeth. And I do believe at the time I said, if you're getting your teeth involved, you're get, doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I found an article, I came across another article by Alexander Cheves or Cheves or whatever it is, uh, who we talked about last week, who was the bottoming guy which is 21 rimming tips everyone should know, So, <laughs> just to back up my case. Mm. <laughs> and I'm not going to go through all 21, but I just want to discuss this because, you know, everyone has a butt, mm. and uh, regardless of gender, they can all uh, you know, in. have a rim, right? <laughs> or receive one. Mm. So <laughs> he says that he saves it as a special act to do with only certain partners, the ones that he really likes. Mm. How yes, do you I think do that? That's, I think that's. I think so too. Mm. I don't think I'd do it with everyone. No. I think it would have to be, yeah, someone special. But he says, we hold so much shame about our bodies and our butts that getting to that special place where you trust someone with your whole is awesome and intense and a great bit of foreplay for other forms of anal sex. So, I, like I said, I'm not going to do the 21 tips here, <laughs> but there, I will put a link in the description so you, everyone can read the 21 tips if they so desire. And also let us know how you get on with them. Yeah, I, we would love to know how you get on with your <laughs> with your rimming tips. But um, it covers appreciating and loving butts, cleaning beforehand, but don't overclean. Apparently, what does that mean? Well, I think it's about uh, because a lot of people douche, and mm. I think if you douche too much, then you. Uh, get rid of the good bacteria in your bowels, which actually helps you break down stuff and protects you from Mm. diseases and things. Have a high-fibre diet, which apparently helps with all of that. 
there's also you can take supplements and things like that. And apparently there's rimming lube. Did you know about this? No, why would you need that? Don't, well, no. Well, apart, well, he says because saliva can dry out your skin. Uh-huh. But, I mean, I, not really. It's all a bit moist down there anyway, isn't it? Like, naturally. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, ribbing lube is water-based. You can get flavoured ones, which which might, you know, be beneficial <laughs> to, to the act. Mm. <laughs> Um, it also says don't go straight in and aggressively with the tongue vary it up and spelling out words with your tongue is a classic trick yes have you done that? well I've done that with blowjobs oh okay was that something that just came naturally to you or did you read it in a book no I think I was quite bored and so I thought (laughs) let's see if I can spell (laughs) euphemism (laughs) (laughs) the classic trick keeps your tongue moving in different directions instead of making the same repetitive motion um there's other things like using your stubble or your beard if you're scruffy bit like Mm. bit like me Mm. um which feather duster which (laughs) i guess you could use a feather duster although i I I wouldn't want to get feathers up there would you my my yeah <laughs> my mum used to oh my god my mum if I when I was a kid I used to have fits of laughing all the time where I just couldn't stop giggling and my mum used to say what's wrong with you if you've got a feather up your bum cute <laughs> just what you've reminded me of <laughs> so stubble and beard excite the area and don't forget the other parts down there like the taint do you know what the taint is? No. So it's that little bit between between your legs, basically, which isn't which isn't your bum and isn't your balls. It's that bit in the middle. The bit between Christmas and New Year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what we're gonna call it. The taint this year. <laughs> Taintmas. <laughs> Don't bite. I'm backed up with this, so. But I guess you could have a little nibble of the butt cheeks, but you don't want to be biting that, you know, sensitive area. Yeah, that I you'd mean, be rimming. Yeah, biting the cheeks, I think, is fun. Yeah, mm. a little nibble, not too hard. Mm. And finally, get loud. I think if you're receiving it, because then it shows your appreciation. Uh, okay. Yeah. So rimming is one of the few sex acts where you need some verbal or physical reassurance from the receptive person that it feels good. Just moan or a little butt shake tells your partner that you're having a good time. He says he gets very loud when he feels good. Groan, let go, moan into the pillow. That's your partner's invite to keep going. Mm. So are you loud with sex no but my next door neighbour is <laughs> I never used to be but I had a French boyfriend who was very loud and it just kind of like it kind of rubbed off on me So, well it's part of your canon of voice work isn't it <laughs> I've not, actually that's the only thing I haven't done a porn voiceover Voice so, yeah, that's on my bucket list. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll do the important voiceover. <laughs> right, so there you go. That's your not quite 21 tips for, for rimming. Do you feel educated now? 
I think I probably knew all of them. Apart yeah. from that, yeah, I wouldn't have thought that making a noise would be that important, but I could see why, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know the spelling out stuff with your tongue, so that's new to me, and I quite like, I think I'll be doing that next time. What are you like at spelling? Pretty bad, but I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> When you're It'd be funny it. if someone was like, "No, that's not how you spell it." <laughs> yeah, and I'd just say, "Don't be anal about it." <laughs> anyway, we've got a guest. I know it's very exciting. Special guest who's been on before, but the fabulous Dickie Bowes gonna. Uh, talk to us he's got a new show coming out he's been doing a lot in the west country recently so we can talk about that maybe he might be moving well maybe we'll get that out of him but we'll have a little break with our adverts if you don't like our adverts you can subscribe to acast plus and get it ad free and if you do the acast higher tier then you get some extra bits but i'm not putting any extra bits on until people subscribe so (laughs) (laughs) there's an incentive (laughs) right then so shall we have a little break and then we'll come back with Dickie great if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers with Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So we are back and we have a very special guest, don't we, Tommy? Very special. Very special. We have performer extraordinaire and actor Dickie Bow. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, on the whole, I think I'm a bit delirious with fatigue. I had my first day of rehearsal today, so um, my brain is full of stuff. Yeah. yeah, and where where are you? You're just down the road, aren't you? Uh, well, I'm not rehearsing just down the road at the moment. Oh. I'm in London right now, but I will be just down the road in a few weeks' time. Okay. In Bath. And this is your new, your new show? It's a new show, yeah, called Showmanism, which has a nod in there to shamanism, which I hope is quite obvious. Oh. <laughs> are, you, are you willing to tell us a little bit more about it without giving the complete game away? Yeah, um, I'll try. So, well, it, it originated because um, Deborah Warner cast me as Ariel in uh, her production of The Tempest, which we did earlier this summer. At the, which I saw. The, which Tom saw. Yeah, you You're saw very it. very good. Thank you. Um, and how, yeah, it was good. How did that yeah. come about? How did you suddenly doing Shakespeare come about? Well... Actually, I played Ariel once before for Deborah Warner. Oh, okay. Uh, in Salzburg. Right. Um, uh, that would have been, I think, t- ooh, about six years ago. And um, what happened was I met Deborah Warner uh, through Fiona Shaw, actually, because Fiona Shaw was my mentor when I won a thing called the Oxford Samuel Beckett Theatre Trust Award. And so I met Deborah Warner at dinner at Fiona Shaw's house. And then after that, Deborah came to see a couple of my shows. And then she called me up and said, um, I have an idea. Let's have tea. So we went for tea. And she had the idea that it would make sense for Ariel to uh, be a channel for voices within The Tempest. And so she took me out to Salzburg. And we did it. And the production actually was in German, primarily. Wow. Um, so... Yeah, I had to learn Ariel in German, although in the end, I, I, it was a mixture of German and English. Um, Did you speak German beforehand? No. But all of, <laughs> no. The, so all of the text is, is you lip-syncing your own words. In, in, what, in The Tempest? Yeah, is that right? Well, in Salzburg, we, the experiments took different forms. So we began, I, if I remember rightly, with various performances from different actors doing it in German and then the, the the conceit sort of became that the language of shake of, of magic when Ariel was communicating with Prospero was in Shakespeare's English um, but when Ariel communicated with other characters like for example with F- Ferdinand when he's luring him to, towards Prospero and when he's the harpy for example they, they were in German yeah so I had to learn multiple versions and multiple performances like because wow. there were different t- kinds of there were different takes you know of, of, of with different flavors of performance so it was quite a it was quite a concentration challenge but actually harder than learning my own stuff in german as ariel was learning everything that was going on around in german yeah you know what i mean so because you have to know you have to be prepared for something to go wrong which it did did you know like somebody giving you the wrong cue and know that you you have to come in anyway yeah 
so yeah and it was a mixture of my live voice and pre-recorded uh lip-synced uh stuff uh, and similarly when we did it in bath it was a mixture of my voice and mainly uh, uh, fiona shaw's voice uh, we, ah. ours were the two main voices yeah and then shamanism was born out of that slightly Sort of, yeah. So we, we, we'd we been to Salzburg and then Deborah decided she wanted to do The Tempest again and she asked me if I would play Ariel again in this new production for the Houston off at, uh, in Bath. Um, and she said, I also have an idea um, that maybe you could make a new solo show to close the first season. So The Tempest opened the season and she said, why don't you make a new show? And her original provocation was to make a show that was like a concise history of the theatre, um, wow. like a, a one-man show that's a concise history of the theatre. And I said, well, I'm not sure that's exactly the show that I want to make. Um, so can I take that provocation and sort of go off road with it? And she said, okay. Um, and um, so that's what showmanism is. Um, yeah, because I didn't want to do something that was a sort of like a, a textbook in 3D no. um, that was completely pedagogic. Um, I wanted to sort of find my way in um using my own process really yeah okay so that's mm. so then i went off and interviewed lots of people and talked to them about different aspects of performance are they people that have got a history with that or did you move away from yeah yeah they are and um so i I decided rather than doing a a concise history of performance i said how about i do a concise a concise history of the theater i said how about i do a concise histrionic of performance and um because i felt that that was more in alignment with my sensibility. And um, so, yeah, I interviewed Ian McKellen, um, uh, who was a starring voice in an earlier show that I did called Remember Me. And uh, I interviewed a range of other people. Not all of them are going to make it into the show, but they include Patsy Rodenberg, the famous uh, voice teacher, Steve Nallon, who was the voice of Margaret Thatcher famously in Spitting Image. Yeah. Um, and he's on a television show called First Impressions. Uh, who else? Uh, Mimi Denisi, who is in Greece, a very famous actress and uh, has performed in some of these ancient theatres. Um, so I was interested in her experience of what it's like to be in those spaces as a performer. Uh, but I also interviewed people who weren't necessarily so front and centre in the world of um, the theatre, like... Actually, Rupert Christensen, who is uh, an opera critic, and Deborah had paired me up with him to be my dramaturg. And so, yeah, I just collected these voices. And then since, uh, as I collected them, I started to sort of try to navigate a path um, through them. So in a way, it's like, you know, the process is like, you know, gathering a whole ocean of material and then going into it and diving for pearls and then pulling out the pearls um and then stringing them together in some kind of way which is so it's a collage but it there is a there is a, also a, a sort of a journey that has logics to it through the voices what was your experience like of doing the tempest at bath and how do you perceive the audience's responses to it because bath is quite um it's got quite a traditional kind of mainstream thing. When I saw the show, I was really shocked how big it was and how for such a small, you know, studio-based show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of the audience, I suppose, were those kind of like, it felt very kind of like a mainstream audience. Yeah, I think it was probably Bath's uh, regular audience, I guess. 
I mean, I don't know whether a mainstream theatre crowd is even that interested in Shakespeare. Um, mm. You know, I think, I mean, Shakespeare can be challenging at the best of times. But, and the experience for me, having done the, uh, the Tempest in Salzburg, was it was really different because when we did it there, we were in an enormous theatre space, like about a thousand people. You know, and the stage was the stage was bigger than the footprint of the entire Houston off studio, including the auditorium and the audience. Um, so, so to do it in that much smaller space was very different. But, but I think I I, I really think that um, it was a good production. You know, um, I think it was it, there was a sense of scale to it. It's good to hear that you thought that um, that it was that it was surprising in its kind of largeness. Mm, um, yeah. And do you think um, you'll get a different crowd for shamanism then? I've got no idea. I mean, I suppose that some people who saw The Tempest and uh, maybe have some curiosity about what I'm going to do, having seen me do Ariel, will come, hopefully. Um, but I think it would be great if if the crowd was a bit more mixed hmm. than than only a niche uh, crowd. I think it would be good if 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 we could we could pull in some people that might not ordinarily go. Well, to that's it. probably why they've pulled you in, Dickie. Well, I mean, I hope I have got that pulling power. <laughs> um, I'm sure you. You're going to bring the quiz <laughs> in. Well, that, that would be great. I would love the, I would love it if the Houston Off Studio was replete with quiz on any given night. And can you give us a little window into the type of thing that will be included in the performance? Yeah, so the interviews that I've done have kind of been uh, a bit creative in looking for opportunities to theatricalize um often like accidentals that people say in, in in an interview situation stuff that would normally not make the final cut of an interview little asides and stuff that I can transform into something that, that seems relevant to what's happening live in the space. Right. Um, so recasting things that they say that to, to make them refer to an object, for example, that I'm holding or, um, you know, yeah, that kind of... They're doing a bit of that a... in Married at First Sight. <laughs> don't, don't they just do that in all reality TV? <laughs> Lots of things are said out of context <laughs> and shoved in places. Yeah, yeah, and so there's a bit of that. Have you been doing any shamanistic practices as part of your research? Well, the, 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 the nod to shamanism comes from just a few kind of what I think are probably quite obvious connection points. Like, you know, because I've been lip syncing, making shows around lip sync for so long, you know, it's it's happened that people have compared me to like a medium or a channel and this kind of thing. And, you know, the idea of a controlled tr trance is 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 quite a sort of well-known uh, feature of um, shamanistic practice. So I wanted to play with that idea. And uh, the idea of, I was also curious about just exploring the idea of like, you know, what is the role of a performer potentially in relation to a community? Because often one of the reasons I think I probably ended up on the stage is is because I felt like, like I didn't really belong. And I would quite like to be, you know, be in the middle of the bed. I and mean, I was often considered to be strange, but I didn't necessarily want to be. Mm. And uh, so in a funny kind of way, I think being on stage is a way of being in the middle of the bed, you know, and um, becoming part, like joining the human race <laughs> um, when, while feeling kind of like 
de- detached from it. Um, and then, you know, so I was thinking, well, what's the sort of purpose that one can have in that role? You know, is it, you know, the, the kind of cliche is that performers, actors, uh, theatre makers, are storytellers, you know, which is um, one strand. But then there's also a question of like, oh, well, uh, is there all other ways of like, you know, just shining a light in the places where we don't necessarily always lurk and, you know, and even without the risk of sounding grandiose, are there ways in which one can be of service to a community? Uh, I, I, I hesitate to say the word healer, but, but I suppose that was part of my inquiry, you know, mm. um, because also I think that this making the show came on the back of, or actually in the middle of a kind of a dark night of the soul where I was like, why am I doing this? But also, I think, it is. I think theater performance is quite shamanistic in a way, because it is quite ritualistic as well. And you're holding an audience and transforming them and taking them somewhere else. We've uh, just been talking about Molly House ritual- rituals. Oh, really? Yeah, and how they what must kind of. Well, they used to do this thing where they would, uh, they'd obviously d- dress up in um, women's clothing and then they would reenact a birth. But you would, in that little snippet, it was saying it would be like rebirthing their kind of queer personality and renaming mm. them. And I was also saying, well, back then, because when, when was that, 1700s? Mm. There's, there's no music, there's no TV, there's no internet. You're doing it to entertain each other, aren't you? And, yeah. You know, but... I, lo- I love that ritualistic vibe of that. Yeah, and I wanted to try, I mean, I hesitate to say a return, but, well, maybe return is, is, is in a way the right word, you know, because I often think of queerness, for me, I, I, I like to think of queerness as being about a kind of a return to a sort of pre-normative state or way of being. Um, it's often framed as being something that's, you know, as being in opposition to, mm. uh, like the normative um, or the dominant. Uh, but I, I like the idea of it being sort of transcendent of the normative, like not necessarily having to be in opposition to, because again, I think that's a kind of a binary again, mm. you know, um, the opposition. And there's this sort of, I wonder whether the, whether the trope of theatre being, the, the heart of theatre being about conflict, being a bit too facile somehow, you know, I wonder whether something maybe got lost in translation uh, there, you know, that it that need not necessarily only be about, you know, one head banging against another head that, you know, that maybe there are other ways of thinking about dynamic contradiction within uh, like a performance field. Yeah. And, and what, you know, like in a model, it's, it, I think the whole thing, the whole enterprise has been problematized by the um, orthodoxies of business. Because theatre is a business, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Um, you know, and in a consumer capitalist culture, you know, it's all about the emphasis is so much on productivity, on, you know, on products, you know. And uh, so with this, I wanted to really prioritise the process and really ask myself, you know, why, like, you know, because the dark night of the soul that I refer to was, you know, part of that involved the realisation that, you know, I don't really want to do it in order to get up on stage in order to show off anymore. Like, I think it probably got into it for that reason, you know, mm. because it felt somehow like it was, it was a path to receiving uh, love. <laughs> but at this point, you know, it's it feels too shallow to do it just so that people can say, well done, aren't you wonderful? Mm. Um, so I was like, OK, I would like to search for a bit of a deeper meaning, which, you know, I don't want to give people the wrong idea. I think the show is still nevertheless fun and um, and entertaining and engaging, I hope. But 
the I felt like I needed a deeper to find a deeper reason for for doing this kind of work, you know. So I was thinking I was very close to dropping everything, like throwing in the towel and going. Actually, I think I'm going to retrain and become a therapist. Wow. Um, uh, which I haven't completely ruled out, but I've got to get this show done first. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be calling on your therapy skills later, obviously. Oh, yeah. uh, for our Queens of Agony section. You're not going to oh, yes. get away oh, without goodness. doing that. <laughs> oh, yeah, great. Uh, so when is the show on? So it's from the 11th of November till the 10th of December. It's quite a long run, actually. Mm. So um, so please do round up the queers in Bristol and bring them down. Um, yeah. You know, if it helps, uh, you know, I spend some of this show in various states of undress. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, I don't want to be shallow, but you are looking really buff in the picture. Have you always been Am that I? buff? Uh, underneath um, <laughs> I think I just well, used to I'm, seeing you in baggy clothes or a costume yes I often wear baggy clothes yeah yeah I'm a bit of a shrinking violet in some ways traditionally and uh, I, I, I go through phases yeah I go through phases probably of being a little bit but I, I'm, I'm not super buff I'm not really like a gym bunny I'm not um, you know I'm not like a, a, a super hero or anything like that I don't have that kind of a body I don't think but um, I don't think I look terrible in my underpants. I think you look very fit. and oh, uh, You can stay. <laughs> and I think lots of other people do too. You keep popping up on things that I'm watching on the telly as well. Do I? I well, I saw you in Sandman. Oh, yes. But, uh, what was You were the Shredder. I was the Shredder, yeah. Yeah. Which was, a, was that a serial killer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Shredder is one of the serial killers. Yeah, in the Collectors, um, did it feel like a double episode? The Collectors, um, towards the end of the Sandman. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was such fun. Great. Are you a big Neil Gaiman fan? <laughs> I haven't. Re- I have read the the Sandman, but I I, ha- I hadn't really read that much of of his stuff before. I'd seen a couple of adaptations, um, and I hadn't. But yeah, I am a bit of a, I am a fan. I like I like his sensibility. And I met I met him once years ago and I did a cabaret gig at the Donmar warehouse. Met him backstage. And um he was so like shy and diffident and kind of like humble that I didn't realise at the time, you know, who he was. It was only afterwards I was like, Oh my god, that was Neil Gaiman. Yeah. You know, because he's so famous. Uh, but he was just really kind of discreet and kind of shy and humble and sweet to everybody. You would never know. Yeah. I mean, I would recognise him now, but at that time, I didn't know what he looked like. Um, <laughs> no. And so, are, are you the, a fan? Uh, yeah, I am. I'm a big fan of Neil Gaiman. Are you popping up in anything else that I might be watching? Uh, or are you not allowed to tell us? I'm in. I'm in. I'm in another show on, on the iPlayer, AIDS, uh, the AIDS and uh, Heard Tapes, oh. which is a lip sync uh, creative documentary based around tapes um, from mostly from the eighties. So. Uh, I'm in that. And what is it and you're doing he, in that? What character are you kind of playing? He's called Michael. He was a drag queen. Yeah, I thought um, I thought I saw you in drag in the, the ad yeah, for that. Yeah, so that was a lovely And is that uh, still on, like, there? Yeah, that's mm, still on. I want to yeah. watch that. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a really good, it's a really good worthwhile piece of documentary making, I think, and I think they did a really beautiful job on it. Great. Okay, well, shall we do some Queens of Agony? Yeah, test out. We're gonna, therapy skills. Yeah, we're going to test out your therapy skills. Okay, here we go. <laughs> going to have another dark night of the soul here, <laughs> Well, we have a little gong bath before we do this. So. Uh, that feels better. Yeah. <laughs> 
wash away the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, dear old Queens and Dickie, obviously, has your taste in men changed as you got older? Has your sexuality changed as you've aged? I don't mean changing from gay to straight, but more what you find attractive. Are you attracted to the same sort of men in your 40s and 50s as you were attracted to in your 20s, for example? Have your taste widened or become more specific? I'd be interested to hear about your experiences. Mm. Wow. What do you reckon? I think they've definitely changed. Yeah, mine have changed, yeah. Mine has as well, yeah. It's quite a penetrating question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> More ways than one. Um, I didn't expect to be put on the spot in quite that way. <laughs> um, well, I just think you have different... Like, I think in your 20s, you don't really know who you are. Yeah. Or what you want. Yeah, I've just certainly become sort of more liberated sexually. Um, but also that question is asking, like, who you would find attractive. And now, like, n- you know, nearly being 50, like, so I would be attracted to people that would be, that could be 60. Yeah. I probably wouldn't even think about that. Yeah. I guess there's a broader spectrum of people that you would find attractive as you get older. I don't know. Dickie, what you... Well. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, because in a way, I mean, I agree with you that when you say that, I mean, I'd, certainly in my 20s, I didn't know who I was. But then I meet people who are in their 20s now, you know, queer people in their 20s now, and they seem so much more evolved and, you know, clear about, you know, what they're interested in and, you know, the, open about exploring their desires and kinks and things like that than, than, I, than, than I ever was when I was that age. I was much more uptight. But we, d- um, but we weren't exposed to like we literally there was no internet when we were kids so we weren't exposed to that level and also it being queer or gay or or whatever was not de rigueur back then at all so it was all very closeted and it was difficult to talk to people about what you're meant to be like Mm -hmm. as a queer person just that thing about sex positive like i didn't i do i don't think i knew what that uh, that as an expression what that meant when I was young like and so if you don't know what that if you don't have that word for it then you don't Mm. then you can't find it within yourself can you no 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 you can't and of course it's 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 an interesting moment isn't it because with only fans and everything and um you know I I I sometimes get a bit confused about you know, because I'm all for people being sex positive. And then on the other hand, you know, for example, I look, this is getting into a controversial territory, but I look to someone like Madonna, you know mm. what I mean? And um, and I think her messaging is so confused. Like on the one hand, she's she complains that she's being, um, you know, about ageism. And that, but to my eye, with all of the work that, that she's done on herself and so on, and the way that she sort of seems to want to frame herself as being, a sort of sexy teenager or something mm. uh, that actually she's the one who's got the problem with ageism. You know what I mean? And I, and I do wonder, it's just a question I haven't got an answer for it. And I'm sure it's different for different people, but I do wonder whether there is something in the, see what Madonna seemed to be a pioneer of as much as anything else is the, is the, is the commodification of her own sexuality, mm. you know, and that's present that's held up as being, empower empowering but in another way i i look at her and i wonder whether it's a kind of bondage 
also and so um when i look to the the phenomenon of only fans i also wonder you know how much of that is that about liberation and how much of that actually ends up sort of conforming conforming and mm. constraining mm. in some way yeah um yeah and it's i'm sure it's different for different people but it's a question I but think we didn't have that when we were 20 in our no, 20s. we certainly didn't. I mean, I think I was scrambling around in the dark. I think yeah, well, I think when I was in my early 20s, I just thought I I met someone, I had sex with them, and then I'd just go out with them. Well, sex <laughs> is still framed as being right at the centre of, 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 of a relationship, isn't it? Like, mm. um, it's the main event, isn't it, of a, of a, of a relationship. Um, mm. Yeah. And so I think I ended up being a serial monogamist in my 20s which wasn't particularly good for anyone. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think I'm in a much better place with all that stuff now. Anyway, should we move on? Yeah, because we totally covered that one. I think we, we probably, I, I'm pretty sure we haven't. But, but I do, I, I think, it, well, no, I think it, your outlook definitely changes. You're a different person. You, you know who you are more, so therefore you know what you like. And so, yeah, it's always going to completely change. It's going to be the goalposts will move. It's ever evolving what mm. you find attractive. Mm. Um, My tastes definitely haven't narrowed, though. I don't know about yours. They haven't narrowed. They've definitely broadened rather than narrowed. Yeah, yeah completely. I, th I think my tastes were very much narrower when I was younger, whereas now right. I think I'm more open to all sorts of people for different, different reasons as well. Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah, and it's not necessarily only about a visual attraction. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Tommy, do you concur? Uh, oh, totally. I was just reading the next question. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Doing a preemptive strike. Okay. Dear old queens, Dickie, a theory. Mm. Many gay slash queer people are visually gifted and excel at being artists, set designers, hair and makeup people. And I wonder if we developed a keen eye for detail looking for other queers. I know I'm generalising, but before apps and, and in rural areas, it was all about eye contact, noticing subtleties. Just wondering if you'd ever thought of this theory. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm, yeah what a rich question the first thought I, I had was it reminded me of initially of you know that thing quentin crisp said was you know it may be true that artists adopt a flamboyant appearance but it's also true that people who look funny get stuck with the arts and that <laughs> happened to me <laughs> that's a great quote <laughs> but it also reminds me of that david halperin book how to be gay have you come across that book no. And it's kind of a, an academic book, but he talks about that thing of that phenomenon of how by some strange osmosis, it seems that, that you know, he talks particularly about gay men, gay men being a kind of like naturally somehow attuned to certain cultural, uh, you know, objects, you know, certain and certain arenas like, you know, the theatre foyer. You know, mm. of a Broadway musical um, and you know how by without having communicated it you know or learned it formally that, that there's a there's a kind of you know people cluster around certain camp tropes and stuff like that you know um, so I think there is a and it's to do with the outsider perspective probably as well I think totally because I another another friend of mine asked me a few years ago they were like 
why are gay men attracted to people like gay icons like Bette Davis and Joan Crawford and mm. um, Liza Minnelli? Because I was attracted to those people when I was a kid. Yeah. So same. probably before I, I even realised what my sexuality was. Yeah. And it's weird how so many gay people, queer people are are attracted to those people. It's almost like it is in our DNA. But I think it is because they are others themselves. Yeah. Like someone like Betty Davis, you know, is a, is a, she's a she's like an alpha female, right? Kind yeah. Of, mm-hmm. um, you know, she's and and she can the, my perception of her is that she could hold her own in any situation with anyone. Um, and you know, if if the if the norm, if if the dominant is like the cis het white man, everybody else is basically marginalised. Yeah. Um, and so when you see a figure that you know would ordinarily be marginalised, but somehow is broken through and is like the queen of their own castle, if you like, then maybe that somehow reflects a desire within oneself to be able to transcend the norm yeah um definitely is there, is there anything in that i don't know i think so and also with someone like judy garland who's just a little bit broken as well which also reflects how you feel as an outsider you just i don't know we just kind of intrinsically identify with these these icons don't we yeah and there's that sort of dichotomy of being being sort of tragic but also be, putting on a front and being being the life and soul yeah and successful and yeah there's something as well mm. about this question that made me think, well, I don't know whether that actually is true because you go down to like the Bear Bar in Bristol and then they're not all set designers and makeup <laughs> artists. They're just like, I think that you think of think of queer people as being that, but that's just because you, you, you're thinking of the people that you, that are in the public eye or yeah. that, that are celebrated. But mm. Yeah. More visible mm. members of the community. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. But I don't know. There maybe there is something in it in terms of a lot of, of the boyfriends that I've had have been very dull. Of that. Okay. Where do you meet them, Tom? <laughs> Why do you want to? <laughs> Not in the art gallery. <laughs> I've never picked up in an art gallery. I don't think, or in a theatre, actually. No. It's well, it's not really a pickup spot, is it? Although the Garrick's, was it the Garrick's Head or uh, there is in the Theatre Royal in Bath? Yes. What half of that bar was traditionally a gay bar? It's not anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Back yeah. in the nineties, definitely not now. I used yeah. to I used to live in uh, Bath in the nineties, and it was it was traditionally a gay bar. There is one gay bar in Bath, isn't there? I didn't actually all the time I was there, and I didn't go in it, but I walked past it several times. I mean, that's as good as. Forgotten. maybe it's just a different scene in bath maybe they meet in other areas maybe they are meeting in the art gallery (laughs) is the queer scene in bristol very thriving i would say so yeah yeah Yeah. but and there's lots of different things but it's also very integrated as well Mm. in bristol i think bath is i always felt when i was living there i didn't i definitely didn't feel i fitted in and Mm. And I I was living in Bristol before and I moved back to Bristol just because I just felt it just welcomed people. I had more friends here. I could make friends here, whereas I found it more difficult in Bath. But I don't mm. know whether that's changed. Yeah, I don't know. I can I, can, I don't know. But I, I, I think I'm going to try and come out and have a few nights out in Bristol while I'm in Bath on, this time. Is that a good idea? Yeah, of course. Come over. We'll take you out. 
Okay. <laughs> so having an eye for duty, I guess you might have a, a gaydar. Is that what they're saying? If you've got gaydar, then you might be an artist. <laughs> It's kind of, it, you know, it also makes me think of, and this is maybe getting a bit heady, but, you know, I, I have this theory about like Oscar Wilde, like as being like the, like the, uh, the progenitor of the type of the homosexual, you know, like he didn't refer to himself as a homosexual. And of course, like the word homosexual was only like a mid 19th century invention, but like he seemed to settle into like a, what we now might think of as a more conventional homosexual identity structure after he'd been in prison. And I think really crucially when he was in exile, mm. you know, so he was an outsider from the culture that he had adopted because of course he was an outsider in a way to begin with. And I also think that one of the reasons that he ended up in prison was that the, um, the Marquis of Queensbury was, was, was because up until the middle of the 19th century in public schools, like it was common for boys to not only share a room, but to share a bed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There was a kind of a romantic culture around young men together and young women together. You know, there were people had romances in their friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, so I and I think that the Marquis of Queensbury was so like incensed at not necessarily the idea that his son was being potentially sodomized, but that it was uh, that he was potentially being sodomized by an Irishman. Um, you know what I mean? Someone yeah. from the original colony. And I, and so I think I think there's something about and then him settling into this kind of homosexual identity in later life while he was in exile i think says something to me about just an outsider perspective like a shared subjectivity mm. of of outsiderism that i think that, that that question for me speaks to a bit that there is that there is an eye for something yeah. um from the from the the outsider gaze of the gaze yeah when beca- when things become kind of more integrated then i wonder whether that outside outsider status ceases to exist oh, well i wonder about that i don't think it, i think it hasn't ceased to exist for me but i think that's because of the, well, the time that i grew up in yeah. mm. and, it, and I, I knew that i was gay from like a really early age i was precociously aware um so i, and I, I felt think that. there's and I, a sense of inherited trauma around that as well mm. or not trauma necessarily but um inherited outsiderness yeah yeah, I, well, I think trauma is not an inappropriate word. I know it's used very glibly nowadays, but I don't think it's an inappropriate word for, mm. for that experience. Because no. trauma is about the effect, isn't it? Mm. It's about the effect of a of a, an emotional climate or a social climate or a series of events mm. um, on the nervous system, really. Mm. Okay. So do you think we've ambiguously answered that? I think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> If you if you don't answer them uh, to the satisfaction of the question, and do they write in and complain? Uh, they can do, but no. whether I read them or not is a different matter. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, these aren't deeply personal questions. These are just kind of statements, aren't they? Um, anyway, dear old queens and Dicky, do people like mask subs? I'm a super mask presenting guy. I find that many people assume based upon my looks and personality that I'd lean to be on the dom side. But at heart, I've always really secretly wanted to be used as a sub. Do you Mm. think there are a decent amount of people out there that prefer mask subs or am I doomed? Apologies, I'm pretty (laughs) new to all this, so don't really know. Why do they say I'm a super masculine presenting guy? Don't, Why does he say he's super? Maybe he wears a Superman outfit. 
which I would well, say. Well, saying he's very masculine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have thought latex is that masculine, but, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, what, what do you think, Dickie? So is he, the question is, is he doomed or is he going to find... I mean, I'm sure that he'll be able to find someone who is into a, a, a sub-super mask. Yeah. He just needs to find his tribe, really, or find the right yeah. app. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's about finding the he, right app. I think he just needs to be explicit about what he, what what he wants. Yeah. yeah. And who he is. Yeah. I mm. mean, maybe he's not... Yeah, he's not... Because he's presenting as mask he's not giving off the nods that he wants to be sub. So but he I needs to think, actually literally yeah. put that yeah, out I don't there. Think, I, mean, I don't think everyone would assume that about if someone was presenting that way, then they would automatically be. I think they do. I think they definitely do on um, apps. Yeah. Yeah, because it's all so shallow in a way. It's It's like Argos for men, isn't it? It's, kind of <laughs> it's, it's sort of quite it's quite uh, binary to put yourself and just think about ways yeah. that people look and ways that people perform in that kind of way. Yeah, exactly. And it's a bit like what uh, Peter and I were talking about in the last episode about how like people are very uh, they identify as top or bottom. And actually, when I I came out in the nineties, I don't think anybody identified as that. I think we no. just do. You know, you you just try things out and do them with people. It wasn't there seems to yeah there seems to be a very binary way of of looking mm. at the sexual act these days. Yeah, I don't even remember top and bottom being expressions that were used in no, the mid nineties. Not at all. Um, yeah, what would, what were used? I mean, I'm not sure it was. It wasn't so cut and dry, was it? And uh, it's fun. It's interesting that, that that people really become. And it's amazing to me also, like, you know, like a 22-year-old will know exactly what they want, that they are like a, you know, that, that, what, what kinks they're into and, what, you know, that what what position that they want to be in and blah de blah It's amazing to me. Yeah, but I think harking, harkening back to the earlier question, I think even if they think they know what they like now, I think that will change because yeah, there's so always sure room right. for manoeuvrability as you get older because you just, I mean, you want to try different things anyway, don't you? Yeah, just get bored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you feel about, I mean, because it's a role play as well, isn't it? Like, a, you know, like there's some kind of, inherently there's a role play going on when you describe yourself as being a sub, like mm. wanting to be used. And so what do you think about that in, in, in relation to sex? Because in some ways, like, is the role play presumably is potentially a barrier to intimacy, isn't it? Like if you, rather than just being, you know, your authentic self in the moment, without any kind of like category imposed on that i would disagree with that i i think if i think if this guy i mean he he's obviously into kink i think if he's saying mask or sub and actually i think some of that role play can allow you to open up and be what you actually want to be rather than you it allows you to express that because you you become someone else Explore facets of yourself that may otherwise be kept under wraps. Yeah, that would be repressed yeah. in everyday life. Yeah, so it's maybe not so narrow. Maybe it's a way of broadening your expression. Yeah. but on the, Like, on the other hand, I think it speaks to quite spontaneous hookups when you, when you automatically go into those 
Yeah, I mean, it's those kind of it's roles. very it's just the apps, isn't it? It's like everything is. I mean, you even have to fill out categories about all of this stuff, mm. about what you want and how you want it, and it, it's just like, well, can't, can't you just go with the flow with that? Because everybody's different. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the dynamic. Yeah, you can't always tell what that's going to be until until you're in the room together. Yeah, totally. And certain things that you might think you want to do with one person, you want you want to do a different thing with somebody else. So mm. um, maybe be open to being more dom. <laughs> ruined his fun. <laughs> but yeah, but, but then find someone who will explore also being a dom, and you can be the sub. You know, it's. I think you need to. I think he needs to find his tribe and move in a different field. And then he can explore all of his sexuality. Let's move on because I'm conscious of time. Okay. Dear old Queens and Dickie, this is the last question, by the way. Okay. What's your idea of the perfect date? So the question is pretty self-explanatory. I'm asking this because I myself am heavily leaning towards a cosy vibe when it comes to dates. And I'm wondering if other LGBT men feel the same way. What's an owl man? <laughs> who, who knows? Like, there's a whole pizza of um, genders now, right? So, who, <laughs> uh, and he missed the cue off. So, <laughs> um, or women. So, what? What, what do you reckon? Because yeah, anyone can have a date, right? It's not. Just, it's not restricted to, <laughs> to LGBT men. <laughs> I just want a picnic. That sounds cosy. Mm. Yeah, I, I wish I knew a bit more about co- what what was meant by cosy. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, is I don't know. Is this a reaction against just sex meets, or is it? Oh yeah, I see. I, I mean, there's certain things I think are bad for dates. Oh yeah. Like I don't think going to the cinema is a good date. Not for, for a good first date, no. No. Um, I mean, I guess it could be a date somewhere down the line. Yeah, a bit further along the line, it's quite fun, isn't it? To go to pictures and... Yeah, but a good first but, date is not going to the cinema because you don't get to know someone. I guess you could have dinner beforehand, but you want Yeah, no, I'm with you, I think, yeah. What about a sing-along cinema experience? <laughs> sing... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, like sing-along the sound of music? Mm. That might be fun. That would also be fun. But also, (laughs) I think off-the-wall things are quite interesting for a date. Like, do something really unusual. Pottery class. A pottery class would be... That's a good idea. That's a great first date. Yeah. Because I think if if you're kind of both out of your comfort zone, then you kind of get to know someone a little bit better, don't you? Yeah, but also you get to play, like... One of you can be Demi Moore and one of you can be Patrick Swayze. <laughs> yes. I actually got bought a pottery experience for my birthday, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh. Um, who should I be, Demi Moore or Patrick Swayze? Mm, my instinct is to say Patrick Swayze, but look, I don't want to impose. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to bring anyone on the class? There's a whole group of people going, so... And you're dating all of them? I'm not, well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a date. You it's, should turn, it's just you should, an experience. You should turn up at the class expecting this as a date. <laughs> uh, 
bit like speed dating. <laughs> speed pottery dating. I haven't even decided what I'm going to make yet. Have you ever done speed dating? Yes. That's also really odd because you get like five minutes with someone and it's a little bit like an interview. But I do. Mm. I find dates are a little bit like an interview anyway. Don't you? Depends. Well, it depends on the, what the date, like what your motives are for having the date. I mean, if it's a date that's when you're looking for a boyfriend specifically or, or they are, yeah. um, then uh, probably they can be a bit like an interview, yeah. But also if they don't talk very much, I end up asking loads of questions and it feels like I'm interviewing. <laughs> but I guess that's probably a bad date. So, <laughs> a cozy dinner is a good idea for a date, isn't it? Always, I think that's that's always a nice uh, a nice date. But any um, any off mother. off the wall dates for you, Dicky? What would you do? Off the wall? Oh God, I don't know if I'm really that outre. Um, <laughs> hmm. I, 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 I'm quite simple. I, you know, when the weather is congenial, you know, a walk down by the canal might be quite nice. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but I do have seen on the app sometimes, uh, like people saying that they they want cuddles. Mm. I've seen that quite a bit. Um, so I wonder if that's what they mean. You that's... know, like, and that to me is weird because I mean, I've been invited. Like somebody, people have said to me, "Do you want to come around for a cuddle?" And I'm like. I've never met you before. I don't know if I do want to come around for cuddles. Like, that feels... But isn't that just a euphemism for sex? Oh, is it? I'm assuming oh, God, I'm it is. So naive. I mean, really? cuddles are nice, but I, I imagine that cuddles is like moving on to something else. Are you regretting well, like that you cuddles, didn't but... accept it now, Dickie? Yeah, I am a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I often think that sometimes I, I, I think, you know, I, what I would really like is to have a bath with someone. Uh, so that could be an interesting date, couldn't it? Mm. Have a bath together. That's very intimate um, for a first date. It's intimate for a first date, you're yeah. right. I mean, that's almost <laughs> um, like a sex meet. <laughs> it is. But yeah, you could do it, you could do it in bath. You could do it in bath, in the Roman baths. Yeah. You, can you, you can't go in there, though, can you? In the baths? Yeah, yeah well, there's a spa there. Oh, it is a spa. Yeah, I've got a lovely port, oh, rooftop yeah, pool and the, stuff. Go, going to the spa could be, yeah, because it's not quite as as full on as going to a sauna. No. Um, but you can go in for a spa experience, have a massage, hang out, um, chip, chat. And you get an eye of the lemonade. goods without actually committing. Yeah, that's kind of a hot day, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I like the sound of that. That's a good, that's a good day. That's, I'm going to try that. Not that I tend to go on dates anymore, but... <laughs> <laughs> actually trying to get a, a date is really difficult <laughs> so everyone, everybody just wants sex oh yeah so an they actual do, don't they? yeah an actual mm. date is actually a hard thing to find well, I so and the more available uh, what's that i said bernie shouldn't be so good at it <laughs> but the more available sex is as well i wonder whether it makes people feel a bit more precious about the time that they're going to give for like a date mm. do you know what i mean like i know i think i I'm, i feel a bit like that sometimes a bit like oh okay, i mean that's an investment you know like mm. that i might spend a whole evening with <laughs> somebody new <laughs> and i'm constantly telling my friends i haven't got time to catch up you know um yeah so and and it's hard to tell through an app whether yeah it would be nice to meet people in the real world wouldn't it to yeah, I feel that's a um, 
that's an art which is uh, kind of falling by the wayside to actually meet it people is. in real life. Yeah, and how do you ask them out, and when is it appropriate or not as well? Like, yeah, and I think as things get more integrated, that gets more and more difficult because when you used to go to a gay bar, you just assumed everybody there was open to being approached. Oh yeah. Whereas now it's a bit of a mixed playing field. I would have thought in terms of their expectations. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, maybe we'll get some. Mm. We'll find. We'll get some answers to these questions by coming to see your show, Dickie. To those those questions, not those ones in particular, oh. but some questions. Uh, <laughs> there, are, there will be answers to some questions. Yeah, right. I think there's some some interesting stuff there that people might not have heard of before or thought about before. Certainly, I hadn't. And it's, I think it's a little bit sexy in some ways. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's still coming together. You know, I had day one of rehearsals, so we're still making yeah. it. Yeah, it's ever evolving. Um, yeah, so perhaps this conversation is going to feed into it in some way. Yeah, and obviously it'll be a great date to take pe- someone on. Oh, I think actually, <laughs> it might, it actually, <laughs> actually, it might not be a terrible date. Yeah, might, I think it, it would be a good date. date because. One of the things that came up in the, many of the conversations that I had around theatre was that theatre is, you know, largely about conversation. You know what I mean? Like it's about, you know, within a within the piece, within the show, you know, there's often some kind of conversational activity going on, some kind of like thing being thought through, com- sort of in a conversational way. Um, but also, um, Aoife Monks, who's a, an academic at Queen Mary, was talking about how, you know, in some ways the theatre isn't the main event. You know, the, the show isn't necessarily the main event. The main event is the conversation that it, conversations that it triggers, you know. Um, and it's those conversations that, get, that bring people together and, and, and help people show each other who they are. So I think actually going to a, a theatre show that is about ideas will potentially be a great way for, for people to get to know each other. Yeah. Because then they can, they can get together and talk, talk about the ideas afterwards and then you really get the measure of each other. And then there's nothing hotter than somebody who's really able to wrestle with a, with a, a, a meaty idea. <laughs> I love a meaty idea, don't you, Tommy? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that bombshell... <laughs> <laughs> I think we've come to the end of the podcast. Dickie, thank you oh, so shame. much. Thank you so much for having me. It's really good to see you both again. And, and I look forward to reconvening after my stint in Bath and our nights out in Bristol so we can reflect. Yes, do. Uh, yeah, come back anytime. And so looking forward to your show. Yeah, I really hope you like it. I'm sure yeah. I'm sure we're going to love it. We will love it. I think there's I think I think I hope so. Yeah, I think there's some there's stuff to like in it. I think there is some stuff that you'll like. Well, definitely. Mm. Okay, so Dickie, please say goodbye to our lovely audience. Goodbye, lovely audience. <laughs> Tommy, say Look after go- yourselves. Tommy, say goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye, lovely audience. You can catch us next time on What That Old Queen. You have been listening to What That Old Queen, written and presented by Tom Marshman and Bernie Hodges. The show was produced by Bernie Hodges for Hodge Podcasting in 2022. If you have a question for the old queens, or you'd like to be a guest, or you want to sponsor a show and give us lots of money, you can email hello at thatoldqueen.com or find us on Facebook 
Instagram or Twitter. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.